Welcome to our Palm Sunday service. Palm Sunday. I grew up as a kid thinking Palm Sunday was all about the palm branches. Maybe you did too. You know, there were crafts to be done at Sunday school, kids presentation at church, a a reenactment by waving palm branches as Jesus walked into Jerusalem. Sometimes there would be even real palm branches. Of course, those can be a little dangerous around little boys. I know and I get the purpose behind all that creativity. It was really good and teachers did a great job. The purpose was to get me to, to see Palm Sunday, that it's really all about Jesus. The beginning of his week-long journey to the cross and then the resurrection. In the gospel accounts, Palm Sunday is the, is the first day of the week. The Sabbath is the last day of the week. It's on Saturday. It's over. And now it's Sunday, the first day of the week. But for Jesus, it's also the last Sunday of him being in the form of human flesh. Jesus parades into Jerusalem on that Sunday with a throng of followers. And the people are singing his praises. And here's what they're declaring as recorded by Mark. In Mark chapter 11, verse 10. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. To paraphrase the shouts of, those, of the crowd, it would be, you know, save us, our Messiah, who comes to fulfill God's mission. Save us, we beseech you, as you take your rightful place on King David's throne here in Jerusalem and extend heaven's salvation to us. And of course, in their minds, there's the primary feeling, please, please free us from all these Roman conquerors. In verse 11, Mark goes on to say, then after that entry, it says, Then Jesus entered Jerusalem, and he went to the temple. And after looking around at everything, he went out to Bethany with the twelve, since it was already late. What I want us to do together around God's word in the few moments that we have to share is to, is to take in those next four days, the Monday right through Thursday of the week, which the church for thousands of years now has been calling Passion Week. Let's walk through them together and let's be changed. Monday, I've entitled it Worship. Mark 11, verses 15 and 16. Jesus entered the temple area And he began to drive out those who were selling and buying in the temple courts. And he would not permit anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. You may be saying to yourself, Pete, that doesn't sound much like worship. Well, let's let's remember, it's, it's the Monday before the cross. Jesus knows where he is heading. And we do not find him rushing around aimlessly, trying to get his life in order because he knows the end is near. Instead, he, he, he purposefully is getting his father's house in order. Well, for who? I believe as we go through the text together in these next four days, we're going to discover it's for you and it's for me, particularly Gentiles. Most of us gathered online are Gentiles. I understand there will be some, some Jewish visitors and some, some, some of you will have Jewish backgrounds and that's wonderful. We're, we're so glad you're here. But for the most part, most of us are Gentiles. And in the Gospels, Gentiles, they're mentioned here and there, but really not all that much. And, and Jesus' offer is first and foremost in the Gospels to the nation of Israel. 
Jesus first encountered Gentiles at the beginning of his life as the God-man, when Eastern Gentile magi, who the song says were wise men, those magi traveled a very long distance. Why? The text tells us they came to worship him as a child. Now nearing the end of his own journey, one that would take him to the cross on Friday, he's standing on Monday in his father's house on earth, the temple. And Jesus finds that the Jewish nation, especially the leaders who are in charge of the temple, had replaced true worship and true sacrifice with ritual, with greed, and with a commercialized excess. It's shades of some of the excess that you and I encounter and may notice in our own modern worship today. But here in the court of the Gentiles, and I've put up a diagram for you to travel along with me through this text. There are arrows that will will point to the different sections we're talking about because I want you to get this. It's the court of the Gentiles. This is where we understand that this story is taking place. It's where Jewish worshipers from all over the world would come at this special time of the year and make a pilgrimage for Passover, and they came to offer sacrifice to God. But they had to purchase those sacrificed animals. They had to purchase the the animals in order to make those sacrifices because you can't bring them with you. And those of high priestly rank had allowed the normal spots, again, I show you with an arrow there, under a roof structure, that's where typically the the selling would would, would take place and the money changing would take place. They'd allowed it to overflow into the court of the Gentiles. So it had become this huge, smelly, loud, bustling marketplace, all at the expense of the Gentiles' place where they can worship. This is the only place they could get near the temple courts and get in there. This was a place designated for them. And these Gentiles, who the Jews are to influence for God, instead of a place of worship, they have a place of commerce. Then as now, time was in short supply. It's always been that way. So those in charge of the facility, which I'm sure the spiritual bean counters had come to regard the temple as more of a facility than a a place of worship, they created a shortcut, and it went right through the court of the Gentiles. That's why the market was there. Get your sacrifice here. Get your foreign money exchanged into Jewish coins, which are the only kinds of coins that would be accepted to pay the temple tax. You know, it's good for business. It's, it's a way to consolidate commerce and communion. My goodness, we have a, a one-stop shop here. This is awesome. Well, then as now also, making a buck off of religion was very, very profitable. And this greed, this, this love of money has always plagued mankind. It's, it's always plagued the church. And maybe they won't notice, they thought. Maybe they won't notice that we're making money off of worship. Well, as we read the Gospels together, as we look at these days, as they flow together, I think we come to the conclusion that these leaders probably didn't even care if anybody knew. This is what they did. We know from the historical records outside of Scripture that the priests of higher rank owned, actually owned some of these stalls. We even know them by name. Annas the high priest and his sons had stalls and they profited. We know that, that higher than fair exchange rates were gouging people who were in very vulnerable positions. They traveled 
uh, made these pilgrimages, sometimes long distances. They needed the sacrifices. I mean, that was the whole point of the pilgrimage. So if you don't pay, if you, if you don't have a sacrifice, you, you won't be blessed. But Jesus, we read, blows the whistle. He stops the hurly-burly traffic through the plaza that had been originally dedicated for Gentile worship of Yahweh, of God. Does any of this remind you of maybe similar feelings that you may have had in the past or even of worship in general about God stuff on Sundays or any day for that matter where God interrupts your plans? Hurry up with the worship, will you? Let's get this over with. Let's get on with it. Let's get down to business. By the way, where are we going for lunch? Worship of God can be such an interruption into the course of my normal day. I I, I do. I I admit to you, I try to start my day in tune with God. It's become a discipline, and and I love that. But i got to tell you that your day, doesn't it, It's, it's so full. It, mine's so full of like pastoral duties and stuff to do, and there's a list of other things that have to be done, and it seems that this time of worship with God can be such an interruption. Worship interrupts my life, which is precisely what it is intended to do. It's precisely what it is intended to be, an interruption to my driven plans, my driven pace of life. Real worship forces me to pause, take a breath. Real worship demands me and our world to acknowledge that no amount of hurry will improve the odds that I will win the race that I'm in. Whatever that race is that I have volunteered to compete in for that day or that week, Speed doesn't alter the fact that all of humanity is hurtling toward a spiritual dead end. Hurry just gets us there faster. The velocity of authentic worship is typically slow. And doesn't Jesus here really slow everything down? He does it with a whip. He overturns tables. All commerce in the temple, stops. Monday is worship. Tuesday, it's teaching. Matthew 21, 38. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and get his inheritance. You know, someone has taken the time to figure out that if you take all four Gospels, that there are approximately 51 different days that are taken out of the three plus years of the earthly life of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the Gospels represent for us those 51 different days. Sometimes it's just a, it's only a single incident from just one of those 51 days. But what's pretty amazing is on this Tuesday, where Jesus is teaching the whole day, Passion Week, His entire day is recorded in wonderful detail. Mark 11 informs us that it was on this day, this Tuesday, that Jesus explained the cursing of a fig tree that he did back on on, on Monday. And the fig tree uh, withered after Jesus cursed it. And that was the sign that the Jewish religious elite had rejected him 
and they too would wither. There'd be a curse on them. And then Jesus spends much of Tuesday in the same temple courts, the same courts where the day before he had cleansed the place, maybe cleaned it up for his teaching. I think you might be able to say that. His authority to teach is immediately challenged. Well, you can imagine the anxiety and, and the hatred that is building in these religious leaders towards him, especially after what he did on Monday. And now he's got the gall to come in here and teach us on Tuesday. So he teaches parables. He does three in particular. And in the first parable, Jesus um, exposes their lack of repentance among the leaders in Israel. It's in Matthew 21, verses 28 to 32. And then he follows up that lack of repentance with a second parable to show what was really the motivation behind their rejection. It was their desire to get rid of him, to rid themselves of this troublemaker, this guy who's trying to uh, cut in on our um, economy and how we're making money. It's in Matthew 21, verses 33 to 34. And then Jesus gives a third parable. This time it's about a banquet. And God's putting on the banquet. And God invites these leaders to come to his banquet. And Jesus illustrates that they reject God's invitation. And that God's invitation is being given to them by God's Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. And because of this Jewish rejection in, in the parable, God goes out and he looks and makes provision for other people since the uh, original invitees said no. And it's people who these leaders see as outcasts. There's the poor and there's the sick. And yes, especially even you and I, Gentiles. And that's in Matthew 22, verses 1 to 14. Well, the Pharisees go nuts. They go nuts and they go into attack mode. And they even join forces with their arch enemies, the Herodians and the Sadducees. And then Jesus, after they go off, asks them a couple of penetrating questions. What do you think about the Messiah? It's a huge question. And it's sec the second follow-up question is just as important. Okay, now, whose son is he? And that's in Matthew 22. Jesus knows the answer to those two questions from the leaders. They reject that, that he could possibly be the Messiah, the Son of God. So Jesus pronounces a series of, of woe oracles on these national leaders. And then Jesus, after doing that, we have this amazing story, one of my favorite stories, where Jesus calls attention to the poor widow who, who brings, comes into the temple and is walking, and he uses her as a living illustration, and she takes the, the, the small gift that she has of two small bronze coins, which we un, are told by Jesus is all she has. And he compares that to the flaunting of religion that he has encountered so far in the big city. And now it's the end of the day, a very long day, and Jesus takes his disciples aside. Now he's going to teach them privately without any distractions. And he takes them up onto uh, Mount Olivet so they can see the city spread out and the temple before them. And he predicts the destruction of that very temple. And we know that in 70 AD it was completely destroyed. And then he predicts after that the end of the world as we know it. That is going to come true also. Now that's 
that's a really busy day of teaching. But you know what the really amazing thing is that throughout that entire Tuesday, Jesus is really talking about Friday. The literal day when their lack of repentance, when the rejection of his person, when their hypocrisy and their arrogance and their, their ignoring of the banquet invitation from God himself with their desire to kill the heir apparent, when the effects of all of this and, and what they would have not only on the nation of Israel but our entire world would all come true. So Jesus is really talking to you and he's talking to me. He's teaching us what is our response to Jesus? Have we responded to his gracious, gracious invitation to dine with him? Do you believe what Jesus Christ taught? And if you do, are you living accordingly for him and with him? And when this Friday comes, will it be a good Friday? Because you know that Jesus Christ died for you. Monday's worship. Tuesday, it's all about teaching. And then comes Wednesday. An unthinkable response to an unthinkable invitation. Matthew records it in chapter 26, verses 14 to 16. Then one of the twelve whose name was Judas Iscariot. He went to the chief priests and he said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Judas Iscariot, he accompanied Jesus from the beginning of the ministry. He's, he was a witness, an eyewitness to the, to the countless miracles, to the awesome power of God. He was a close friend. He was a, a trusted companion. And for just a few months' wages, he became the perfect snitch. Matthew, who records this for us, knew Judas personally. And it must have been with deep-seated emotion that he, had, he wrote this candid account of what we all consider to be the ultimate betrayal. For centuries, Christians have, have pondered the Wednesday of Passion Week. Uh, they've dubbed it Spy Wednesday. When Judas, like a double agent, took steps towards stabbing the Savior of the world in the back. Our modern world, and in our modern mind, we, we can conceive of a whistleblower. We hear about them all the time. They sound the alarm when there's a charlatan, when there's a liar, an embezzler, someone who's stealing. But on a genuine miracle worker, the likes of which the world has never seen, isn't that unthinkable? And over the course of time, many people have, have tried and made attempts to determine what was Judas's motivation, what was driving him, and, and all kinds of reasons and motives have been postulated, and people uh, get really uh, all into that. Why our fascination with trying to explain what was going on with Judas? I think it's because the alternative is unthinkable. Consider this. If a God-handpicked member of the inner circle of the twelve could turn his back on truth incarnate, why wouldn't any of us be cap capable of the same thing? We don't want to go there. Judas' betrayal 
exemplifies the reality of all of humanity's depravity of which we are a part. If an eyewitness could turn traitor, what's keeping any of us from following suit? Or deviating pretty easily. Most of us would say, oh, I'd never, I'd never be a Judas. But I might simply be willing to deviate from time to time. And Paul gives us a warning in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12. And it should call us to stand up straight and take stock of who we are, who we claim to be. If you think you are standing, if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Sin's poison, which besets each one of us, can, can be like a, like a festering mold. It can easily cultivate in your heart, and then its spores move about the rest of your body and your life and go into the different rooms of your life and consume. And some who have been exposed to the truth, maybe even brought up on it, can choose to reject that truth. But that's not where, where I want to go. I want to go here. That this astonishing contradiction in the life of Judas, this incomprehensibility that we, we, we have a hard time getting our, our minds around, this tragic fall, it drives us, those of us who know Jesus Christ as our Savior, it drives us to a glorious truth. Our security, our assurance does not lie in our own strength. It never did and it never will. Our security lies, lies in the love of God who has covered us in the blood of his son, who seals us by the indwelling of his Holy Spirit. And, it is, and he vows never to forsake us never to leave us. Ephesians chapter 1, uh, 13 and 14. John chapter 14, verses 16 to 18. In light of Judas's unthinkable betray betrayal, we who know God through Jesus Christ, his son, cling to that unshakable promise that our Lord, according to Jude chapter 1, verse 24, will keep us from stumbling. That's who keeps me moving forward. In Romans 8, 38 and 39, nothing, absolutely nothing can separate me or you from the love of God if you are his. And so when I ponder that unthinkable choice, the words of uh, Robinson's classic hymn become my own. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. I do. Prone to leave the God I love. So here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, the fourth day is Thursday. It's Passover. And Jesus gathered with his disciples in that upper room. And they shared the Passover meal together. And we'll talk a little bit more about this on Friday. But for the time being, we're going to celebrate communion together. You may need to pause the, the video uh, online in order to gather your, the cup and the bread together and to take it with me. And I'll, I'll just wait a moment for you. After the 
Passover meal, Jesus took the unleavened bread, and in clear view of all the disciples at the table, he broke it. He broke it off into pieces, and then they each took a piece, and he declared to them that that's going to represent, this broken bread will represent his broken body given for them. Where the prophet's words by his stripes, we are healed, all become fulfilled. And then he told them to take it and to eat it. So let's do it together. And then he took the cup. And he poured it out and said, this is, this is my blood. Remember, they're celebrating the Passover meal. The blood of the lamb would have been put on the doorposts of the home so the angel of death would pass over. It would not harm anyone within that household. And he said, this is my blood, which is going to be poured out for you. I'm going to create a new covenant between God and humanity. And anyone who believes in this will not perish, but will inherit eternal life. Let's take it and remember Jesus' sacrifice for us together. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. What about Friday? Well, I'm going to invite you to gather again online this Friday where I'm going to look more, more deeply into Thursday's Passover because it is such a clear explanation of Friday's God's sacrifice on the cross. We're going to be celebrating communion again this coming Friday, so if you could be ready, there at your home, and we'll remember the cross together. So I'll see you again on Friday. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the, the ability to gather together, to look into your word, to be changed by it, to be moved by it. And Lord, we're really lim limited in our, our influence uh, with people uh, by not being able to get out of our homes and around others at work and at school but Lord there are opportunities and you have presented so many already we thank you in advance for what you're going to do and how you're going to keep us a solid grounded church family we praise you for the sacrifice of Jesus which makes that even possible in his name we pray